If you've got a copy of the Bible, please find our gospel reading, John chapter 2, the gospel of John chapter 2. And as you're finding that scripture, just a quick reminder, for several weeks as a church, when we gather here and worship on Sunday mornings, and then when we meet during the week in, in small groups on Zoom or however your group is doing it, as a group of people, we've been looking to the Bible for God's wisdom on how to understand what we're going through right now in, in our world today. And, and not just how to understand the pandemic and the contentious politics and, and the economic challenges and the racial justice issues. Not just how to understand it, but how to react to it. And, and last week we saw that one of the things that's going on for the church right now is that God is sending us into the world with a unique perspective on what's happening, a unique perspective on the suffering. But where we're going to look this week is we're going to notice that not only does God give the church a particular way of looking at the, the difficulties in our world today, but God also gives the church a particular way of reacting to these difficulties. And so let's turn our attention today to John chapter 2, uh, the first 11 verses. And this is actually the first miracle that Jesus performs in John's gospel. And let's see how this thing Jesus does in turning the water into wine, how it opens up to us a, a particular, a unique reaction that we as a church need to have, that those of us who follow Jesus need to have in, in the midst of all the stresses and the distress that's going on in our lives and in our world. Notice John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And then the very next sentence says, when the wine ran out. Now, if you and I uh, were living in, in the Mideast 2,000 years ago and um, somebody was telling us a story and they said, okay, so I was at this wedding and when the wine ran out, you would have immediately like sucked your breath in like, um, like uh, a really proper woman in the deep south would do if somebody had belched at the table. Um, this was unheard of. This was scandalous. This is not, this is more than just inconvenient. This, this was an honor-shame culture. And, and a wedding was, was a week-long feast. And the, bride, and the groom had a job. And the job of the groom was to provide enough wine so that you stuck around for a week. And, uh, and that you didn't only stick around, but you had a good time that week. And so when this is sort of like you show up to a wedding and, and the groom forgot the day of the wedding and just didn't show up. This, was, this is a big deal. And so they run out of wine and this would have been a, a disgrace for not just the groom and his new wife, but the whole groom's family would have been like now thrown under the bus and everything. So Jesus' mother, Mary, right, she notices the drama in the back and, like, what's going on. She's not related, but she sees the mother of the groom 
giving the groom a what for. Like, I can't believe you've done this to our family. And uh, she goes to Jesus and she tells Jesus that um, they ran out of wine. And that's at the end of verse 3. They have no wine. And then Jesus and his mother have this really weird conversation that if you've ever, if you remember listening to the story, Jesus replies, woman, what does this have to do with me? Which one of my sons sitting here right to my left, I won't tell you which one, but Sloan has taken that word and uses it now to refer to his mom, woman. And I, I don't think he's speaking in the spirit of Jesus here, but he's certainly using his words. And anyway, so she, she I, it's a funny exchange, and I, I've preached on the passage in the past, and we're not going to deal with that, that little thing this morning. But Mary kind of walks off from Jesus and looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. And well, he tells them to, there's these stone jars that hold tons, I mean, a lot of water. And he tells them to fill up the jars with water. And then in verse 8, he, Jesus says, now draw out some of that and take it to the master of the feast. Well, they do that. And then verse 9 says, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, which is the opposite of a religious tradition I grew up in, they would have turned, Jesus would have turned the wine into water. But, but um, in this particular version, Jesus turns the water into wine. He takes it to the, the, the master of the feast. And the master tastes it, and he doesn't know where it comes from. Verse 9 says, though the servants knew they had drawn the water, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, holy cow, um, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, in other words, when they can't taste the difference anymore because they've drunk freely, um, then they bring out the two-buck chuck, and uh, nobody knows the difference. But he says, but you, you've kept the good wine until the end. So, I mean, look, just wrap your mind around this. This was 150 gallons. That's something like 750 bottles. That's 4,000 glasses of the good stuff. Not the stuff I serve you at my house, but if you go to Ed Good's house, the stuff he's saving for a special occasion. This is Ed Good wine, okay? And he saved the Ed Good wine for the end. Now, what's going on here? Well, look, you don't have to be like a theologian or anything. Just take this on the surface and read it the way your high school ninth grade English teacher would have taught you to read the story. This is a story about transformation, this is about the different dimension of reality that comes into being when Jesus is invited to the party. When Jesus shows up. This, this is about what happens when people do what Mary told the servants. When people do whatever Jesus tells them to do. And then in the last verse of our gospel, John chapter 2 verse 11, our passage this morning, it says this. The first of his signs... Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So the author of this gospel, John, he doesn't call that a miracle. Now, it's a miracle. It, it really is. But instead of saying the first of his miracles, he says the first of his signs. In other words, John wants you to realize that this miracle isn't just about abracadabra, Harry Potter, magic. This miracle is a sign pointing at something. 
sort of like that stop sign last week. It was trying to point at me and saying stop, but I was not paying attention and just rode right over it, right? So what we're not supposed to do with this story is just run right past it, right? Don't just ignore it. It's actually telling us something. It's pointing at something. Now, what is it pointing at? Well, when you keep reading through John's gospel, the next time a miracle occurs, he does the same thing. He doesn't call it a miracle. He says it's a pointer. It's a sign. That's in chapter 4, and then he does it again and again. And there ends up being seven of these in John's gospel. Now, what, what are these miracles? Well, I mean, when you read through the gospel, and you really ought to do that. The book of John is one of those books in the Bible you can just flip to and find any passage and read, and it works. It, the Psalms work like that. Just open the Psalms and read one. You can do that with gospel. But John is also the kind of feast that everybody should, on, on periodic moments throughout their life, you need to get a favorite glass of water or wine, whatever it is you drink, when, and you need to read it in just one run through. And it takes a couple of hours for the average reader. And when you do that, and you begin to say, okay, what are these miracles? What are these things? You'll notice that the next one he does is he heals a sick person. And then um, some people are really hungry, and there's no food, and he, he performs a sign. He miraculously provides food. He gives sight to the blind. He John chapter 11, one of the most important passages in all of the Bible, he raises somebody from the dead, and it's a sign. It's not a, you know, when you tell your dog, um, go over there, and he just stares at your finger, like you're trying to stay there, and he's just looking at your finger, right? Signs are supposed to go to where they point. The raising of Lazarus is pointing to something. All of these are pointing. What are they pointing to? They are signs that the world has finally turned the corner from winter. That springtime has finally arrived. That here is a new beginning. You see, the Christian faith is the conviction that Jesus Christ is the God who created the world and he had been promising for thousands of years to heal the world, to bring heaven to earth, to make things on earth right. And finally, here at the wedding in Cana 2,000 years ago, in that moment, when Jesus turned that water into wine, it was not just about let the dude off the hook for the shame. It was, I'm going to love him that way. I'm going to help him that way. But Jesus is also saying, this is pointing to something. Here, the one true God finally is taking charge of the world. And as you keep reading in John's gospel, we see that Jesus' life is a sign. His whole life is pointing to this moment, and it climaxes a few years after this miracle. It climaxes on a Friday afternoon. When you read John's gospel, you see that Jesus understood the whole of history as funneling down to one point. The lonely agony of Good Friday. God himself has come down into his creation. Into his world. God himself has come into the darkness and taken the full weight of it onto himself. And on the cross, all of the sufferings, 
all of the horrors of the world were heaped up on Jesus and he overthrew them by swallowing them until they killed him. And then God raised him from the dead. And that is how God rescues the world from death and everything that death produces. Through the life and ministry of Jesus, climaxing in the cross and the resurrection, God is launching springtime. He's launching the new creation. He's launching his kingdom in our old, tired, death-infused world. Through Jesus, in his miracles, but ultimately in his cross and his resurrection, through Jesus, God opens a door right here on this earth to new creation. And so last week, we, last week we were at the very end of John's gospel. This week we're at the beginning. But last week at the end of John's gospel, we saw in John chapter 20, verse 21, we saw Jesus told his followers... As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. In other words, after Jesus' life and these miracles that are pointing to the new creation, and after his death and resurrection when he opens the door of new creation, he then turns to his followers and he says, Tag, you're it. Now your job is to do for the world what I've been doing these last three years for Israel. And what is it that he had been doing the last three years? He had been offering Israel signs of the kingdom, signs of new life. He had been turning water into wine and feeding hungry people and healing sick people. So when Jesus says to his followers, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you, he is telling us, he's telling you, however old you are, 12 16, 84, he is telling you, followers of Jesus, you have a job to do. And your job is to bring fresh signs of the kingdom into this world. Your job is to bring signs of new life, new creation into this world. And you know what? When he said that to his earliest followers... That's exactly what they did right away. We saw this three weeks ago when we read together Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 is, is at the very beginning of Christianity. It's, a, it's right not long after this, Christianity had gone up to a city, Antioch. And it, that's actually the first place and the first time the followers of Jesus were called Christians. And in that group, the church in Antioch, suddenly famine came into that whole area. And we saw what, how that church responded to famine. And what they didn't do was binge out on Netflix and just hunker down and get comfortable and, and, and ride the storm out. No, what they did was they said, who's going to suffer more than us? What do we have that can help them? Now let's get it to them. What they did was they were the church. They were this shining city on a hill filled with citizens of the kingdom, subjects of the king, doing the kinds of things that happen in God's kingdom. They were bringing to the broken places of the world fresh actions of God's new creation. And that was just the beginning. Over and over, the early church did that sort of thing. 
shocking the world. You see, in the early years of the church, whenever sickness would strike a town or a city, the well-to-do would run for the hills because they had second homes in the hills and because they had figured out enough to recognize that the low-lying putrid air was somehow involved in people getting sick. So the well-to-do would get out of town, but over and over, the Christians refused to leave the towns. They stayed there. They stayed and they nursed people and they caught the disease themselves and they would die. And people were astonished. It was so odd. It was so frequent that non-Christians left. Christians stayed. Christians nursed. Christians healed people. Christians died. This is a common phenomenon. You can read it in historical accounts from from centuries and centuries ago, people would say, what is this all about? And the Christians would reply, oh, we're followers of this man, Jesus, and he put his life on the line to save us. He disadvantaged himself to advantage us, and so that's what we do as well. And like I pointed out a few weeks back, nobody had ever thought of doing that kind of thing before the church came along. And so it's no wonder that the gospel spread. Even when the Romans were doing their best a few centuries after this to stamp out Christianity, Christianity won because Christianity lived these Christians lived these sacrificial lives and they cared for the poor better than anybody else. And so if you were poor or marginalized or oppressed or distressed or in some kind of thing, the place where you could find help and hope and healing was in the church. Over and over, the early Christians picked up their way of responding to the catastrophes of of the world. They picked up their way of responding from the Jewish way of life, from the Old Testament, interpreted through Jesus. And all through the Old Testament, all through the the, the Jewish scriptures, there are these passages that just keep banging on about the belief that there is one God and that one God has a special concern for the poor. The sick, the outcast, not because the poor matter more to God than the wealthy, but because the poor have no way of helping themselves. And God is always going to help those who, who can't, who are needing help. And so when faced with a plague, the early Christians would pitch in and nurse people. Sometimes saving lives, sometimes dying themselves. It was their strong belief in God's promises for life beyond the grave that gave them a fearlessness which enabled them to be cheerful even in the face of death and to give aid to, to those who were suffering because their communities or their families had abandoned them. You see, the early Christians were being for the world What Jesus was for Israel. And what was that? What was Jesus for Israel? He was bringing fresh acts of the new creation to Israel. So for example, just one particular um, moment in history. Around the year 312, Eusebius, a prominent church historian, recorded that the region he lived in had been deeply impacted by a plague, a pandemic. And they had gone through famine. And they had gone through war. I mean, so we got one out of three. And we're all sitting around whining, you know. So they had like the trifecta, right? 
And, and, and he wrote a historical account, and this is a quote. In this awful adversity, Christians alone gave practical proof of sympathy for humanity. All day long, some of them tended to the dying and to their burial. Countless numbers of people with no one to care for them but the Christians. Others gathered together from all parts of the city. A multitude of people who had withered from famine. And these Christians distributed bread to them all. So that the Christian deeds were on everyone's lips. And they glorified the God of the Christians. Then a few years later, do you know that the Christian church invented the idea and the practice of a hospital? A few years after that, the church invented hospitals. And then a few years after that, the church invented medicine being offered to the poor. Up until the church came into the scene, the only people who got medicine were the people who could afford um, an ultra-high deductible insurance policy. In the Middle Ages, the church invented hospice. It was the church that, years after that, first invented the idea that education is a universal right and communities should pay the bill to educate everybody in community regardless of their income. The church invented that concept and first started practicing it. And did you know in 1929, Baptists in Texas invented medical insurance? For the first time in world history. The church. It's always been the one. To come to the broken places. Where nobody else in the world is doing anything. And the church says we'll take that one. We'll go there. We will disadvantage ourselves. For the advantage of others. Again my point is. Before these things happened. Nobody had ever thought of that. Nobody had ever thought of doing it this way. You see in the ancient world. There were four primary thoughts about suffering. And here they are. The first primary thought was what you see when you read like Edith Hamilton's Greek mythology. When you read about Greek mythology. That, that religion, the primary religion of, of the world at this time was paganism um, in that part of the world. And the primary way you thought about suffering when really bad things happened was the gods must be angry. Terrible things are happening. It must be that you didn't offer the right sacrifice or maybe you did, but you didn't say the words quite right or somehow you've ticked off Zeus who it's really hard to tick off because he's a pretty amoral God as it is and you've done something so bad that even he has lost his cool and so he's coming down to deal with you and so the response is, oh, you better repent. You better figure out what you've done wrong. You better figure out what China did to start this virus or you better figure out what the fundies did to destroy the environment or whatever you're pet hatred is just blame that group and say they must be the source of all these ills and so we need to repent so that God is happy with us again and we can move on with our lives the second response in the ancient world that was the pagan response was the gods must be angry so you better repent the second response in the pagan world was the stoic response stoicism and it basically said everything is programmed to turn out the way it does you can't change it so what do you do when bad things happen? You just buckle down and try to make it. The third response came from the Epicureans. They saw, they didn't think everything was programmed. They thought the opposite. They were sort of like Cormac McCarthy. They thought everything is just random. 
And again, you can't do anything about it. But the Epicureans, they didn't say just try to make it. And they, what they said was make your life as comfortable as possible. And then the, the kind of fourth response of the ancient world to suffering, to serious tragedy, came from Plato and the Platonists who believed that life now is just a shadow of the reality of what real life will be. Life here is unpleasant and meaningless, but we're destined for a better world. So let the world go its own way. And those of us who know the truth will celebrate our secrets together. Now, when we turn to passages in the Bible about what happened with suffering, they're drawing on things like John chapter 2 and Jesus bringing new signs of life. And so they rejected all four of those. The, the funny thing is, our world today doesn't use the phrases Stoicism, Epicureanism, Platonism, and Paganism, but it still functions out of those four primary ways of responding to suffering. When things really, really bad happens, there's the old pagan view that God must be angry. Something terrible happens to you, figure out what you've done wrong, repent, and beg God to stop. That's a pagan view. Then, then there's the, basically the stoic view that says, if I get the virus and die, well, I guess if the bullet's got my name on it, I'll die. So who cares about wearing a mask? If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. That's stoicism. Then, then there's basically the Epicurean way. And again, nobody's going around studying this stuff and figuring this out as a way to... It's just kind of a thing you absorb by living today. And there's the Epicurean way, which is what most of our society is in. It's a view that bad things happen. You can't really do anything about them. So get as comfortable as possible. Shut down, lock down, binge out on Netflix... And just get comfortable and ride this storm through. And when everything opens back up, then you come back out to life again. And then there are still some Platonists. Fortunately, they're running around a lot of the churches. They say death happens, but it's not the worst thing that could happen. We're headed for a better place. So just whatever you do, don't shut down the churches or the country clubs. Um, let us live our lives. And what the church has always done in its best moments is rejected all of those options. Because it's got a different view of reality. Instead, what the followers of Jesus have done for centuries is they have visited the prisoners when nobody else would. They have cared for the wounded and welcomed the strangers and fed the hungry and tended the sick. In most past ages, Christians have done this day and night in good times and bad. In the Black Death, they did it. In the Bubonic Plague, they did it. In war and in peace, in the slums of the city and in the isolated farmhouses, clergy and laity alike have done it at considerable and often fatal risk to their own lives. The urge to meet the Lord in the face of the needy has driven the church. So what do we need to do in these moments? We need to be wise. We need to say our prayers and we need to get on with the job of serving the world. We don't have to invent hospitals. We already did. The church caught on, said, great idea. We said, we know. And then they picked it up. All right, so we don't have to invent a hospital. Harrisonburg doesn't need another hospital. Very sadly, our free clinic is closing down. But we've got other agencies that are expanding their services. We need to say our prayers. And we need to find 
where the brokenness is. We're not trying to escape the world like the Platonists. We shouldn't be trying to just get comfortable like the Epicureans or figure out how to fit in like the Stoics or think that God is angry with the world and we need to repent enough. No, instead, our job, our unique reaction to the pandemic, to the economic distress, to the racial injustices, to the polarized political scene, our unique response is this. Give our allegiance to King Jesus. Worship him and then draw down on his power to find the places of brokenness and go there. Let me give you seven categories of brokenness in our world that you can use as a little list so that you can look at your own life and say, okay, let me pick one of these and let me go to one of those. The first category of, these are the basic categories of humanity. The first one is the spiritual category. There are plenty of people who are not in a good relationship with God. And you need to tell them about Jesus. The God we worship goes to weddings and produces lots of wine. Like, this is not a fuddy-duddy in the sky. You need to go to people who don't know how beautiful and fun and amazing and incredible God is. And you need to share the glory of the gospel with them so that they can be made right with, with, with King Jesus. That's one category. A whole group of spiritual needs. A second group of needs in our world today is justice. Where is justice being denied? We're in the midst of our pandemic and our economic challenges and our political fighting and in the, the social issue. Where in the midst of all this are people experiencing something that's just not fair? They don't deserve it. Where, who is being denied justice? We need Christians in Harrisonburg, in our community, demonstrating a passion for justice and then the long, hard work of education that it takes to get involved in these complex situations and to help move our community inch by incremental inch to a place where everyone experiences justice. A third category of needs or relationships. To be human is to be made in God's image, to be made to find ourselves through love, the love we give and the love we receive. We were made for relationships. And for most of us, a loving relationship or a few of them is what makes life worth living. Every now and then you meet the weirdo who doesn't need anybody or anything. But normally, after long, you get to know them and you realize it's a pathological issue. It's not the way they were made. But we're all made for relationships. Where are people in the midst of 2020 isolated? Where are there broken, serious issues happening in people's lives because of what's going on this year? A fourth category is beauty. Beauty is a fundamental category. Spirituality is, justice is, relationships are, and beauty is one of the most basic categories that it takes to be a human. If you think you weren't hardwired for beauty... I wish that I could take you with Janelle and me when we got married a little uh, 25 years ago, 26 years ago. And not long after we got married, we lived in New Orleans, down in downtown New Orleans. And we would spend uh, some of our evenings and our weekends working in the public housing projects of New Orleans. 
And it's easy to look at the 30,000 people prior to Hurricane Katrina living in public housing projects and to, and to think bad of them for all the crime and drugs and everything that goes there. But if you grew up in those housing projects where for acre after acre after acre, there was not a single green thing, no grass, no trees, no flowers, just concrete and red brick buildings, all that looked exactly the same, farther than the eye could see, bam, 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 bam. If you grew up in that, you would be broken too. It, it's dehumanizing to live in a place without beauty. We love living here because we get to see beauty in the mountains. And when you look at very handsome pastors, I mean, it's just all around us. Whether it's a sunset or a song or the smile of a child or Van Gogh's amazing sunflowers, beauty makes us more alive. Our jails are ugly places and they make good people ugly. What are we going to do about that? Where are We need God, please God, to raise up artists who will resist the most recent decade of artist kind of views in America and in Europe, which is brutalism. Anything beauty is superficial. No, the only truth is ugly. No, we need Christians who will come out there and paint sunflowers again. That's a whole other category. Just pick one of these, one that resonates with you, and go to the brokenness. Here, a fifth one is freedom. Humans were made to be free. But in the name of freedom, we choose all kinds of things that lead to addiction and chains and lack of freedom and loss of freedom. And there's a whole lot of work in our community to do to find the people who are hooked on drugs and alcohol and sexual promiscuity or whatever the brokenness is. It's tearing away their freedom. And we need to go into those places. And we need to use the wise resources of psychology and counseling and all the resources we can find. We need to do the long, hard work of being educated so that we can be actual agents of freedom, not just people who walk in and pat somebody on the back. A sixth category is power. To be human is to have power. God, God made us in his image in order to bring his, heal, his wise healing rule into the world. And yet, power, it's dangerous, right? And, and power needs to be exercised wisely and held in check. Where is power being abused in the midst of the pandemic in Harrisonburg? We need to find that. And that's, that's where the church would be going. And the final, the final major category of human existence is truth. And we live in a moment where truth is devolving into fake news all across the board. We, we need to be truth tellers. We need to go into the places of deception and unmask the deception. Where in our wounded world is there a need for God's mercy? And all of us are commissioned by King Jesus. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. Our job, our, our job as Christians is to look at three things. Where we live, what our work is, and our citizenship. And through one of those three things, you need to be in an area of brokenness. If you're not living next to it, you need to work next to it. If your work is not bringing you into the areas of brokenness, then you need to find a way as a citizen to get involved with an area of brokenness in the city you live in 
and work to bring fresh expressions of the kingdom of God. That, the sign, it's a sign. Turning the water and the wine is a sign. Don't just run over it like I ran over that poor stop sign. Instead, look at it. It's telling us. And then at the end, Jesus says, now you go and do likewise. Teenagers, your job in your teenage years is to say, what is broken in this world? And what am I capable of doing about it? And that's what you need to do for your job. You need to be asking that. I've got, you're, you're discovering as a child, as a teenager, what you're good at. You also need to be discovering what's broken and, and how you can go there. Where, where in our wounded world is there need for God's mercy? Where are people suffering through the folly and carelessness of others? And let's go to work at those places. And when we do, see, this is not just going out and doing good. It's going out and doing good in the name of Jesus and experiencing in those moments the power of God coming into our lives and sustaining us for the really hard work. And giving us fresh moral energy to get up day after day and to keep going. And by the power of the Spirit of Jesus, crucified and risen from the dead, our job as a church is to offer this city genuine signs, markers, pointing to the mercy of God. To the cross of Jesus and to his resurrection as the start of the new creation. We are not here in October marking time, waiting for the end of the pandemic. We are not waiting for an escape from this place. We are here to plant seeds and to nurture them and water them until this city and this community becomes more and more filled with the glory of King Jesus. Our job in the midst of the horror of our election and the pandemic and the economy and the social upheaval. Our job is to day by day link up with the broken places of the world and to offer this region fresh signs of God's new creation. This is what a spirit-led mission into our world will look like. As the Father sent the Son, so the Son is sending us. Let's pray.